Welcome to another episode of Sheepdog Nation podcast with your host, me, Autumn Schmidt. This episode is brought to you by the Sheepdog Nation family. This is where police officers come into a group, be mentored by Autumn to grow, to up-level, to transform their lives, to get the position that you've wanted, to find balance in your life, to find balance in your marriage, and to move forward in your career being a serious, badass cop who's got it together. If you are interested in this, Hit the uh, hit the link down below in the show notes, and you can learn all about how you can join us. In today's episode, I'm super excited to have you here, Sheepdog Nation. Um, I interview a police officer from the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Colorado. He his name is Dan Bright. He was hit with an AK seven um, AK forty seven round, and he actually was paralyzed. He is paralyzed from the waist down. And you know what? That did not stop him. And I cannot wait for you to hear and meet this man who is so resilient and tenacious and he just is not stopping. Enjoy. Dan, I'm really excited to have you here. Can you please um, introduce yourself to Sheepdog Nation? Yeah, my name is Dan Bright and I'm a detective with the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Colorado. In Colorado, eh? Yeah. How do you like that? I love it. It's um, I don't love the winter so much, but uh, Colorado's beautiful year round, regardless. So, it's a lot of fun. A lot of things to do here. Hey, have you heard of? Do you happen to know um, a buddy of mine? His name is Patrick Fitzgibbons. He runs the CJ Evolution podcast. I do not. Because he's uh, he just retired from Colorado. Oh. Yeah, he's hmm. a cop. He's a, he was a watch commander down there. But anyways, so. So you're a detective, so you're off, you're off the road. Yes. Yes. So are, I'm, you, like, uh, are you like oh, Danny sorry. Reagan and blue bloods? <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the only cop show I like. I'll be honest with you. That one. And, um, and well, I like seal team, but <laughs> so I like to give my friends shit when they're detectives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I have a, cop show i don't uh i don't watch good uh cops or any of the other shows or good i don't smart. know smart. <laughs> it's hard to watch them sometimes yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> you're smart so so tell us so tell me what tell me about you like what why why does sheepdog nation want to hear from you well uh i've been in uh, law enforcement in uh for 18 years so i'm very familiar with the culture and the things that we experience the traumatic events. Um, and I'm also very, very familiar with how we often deal with those traumatic events. And uh, I, before September 2nd of 2016, I was your, your typical cop that um, I kept my emotions in. I dealt with them on my own. Uh, I didn't share them with anybody. And, uh, you know, my, my coping mechanism back then was I would, I would go running, I would go jogging, and that would help me keep those emotions to a low summer. Um, and that's how I dealt with this profession for the longest time. But then uh, September 2nd, uh, 2016, um, as a plainclothes detective, you know, we responded to a, a suicidal man that was near uh, a hospital, a retirement home, a middle school, an elementary school, um, all within just a couple hundred yards of his house. And he was loading up his RV full of weapons. Uh, he had several ammo cans, uh, AK-47, a shotgun, a handgun. He had just about everything you can think of inside the RV. 
And uh, when we showed up on scene to isolate him, because he was trying to leave and uh, threatening to have the shootout with the police, we were trying to keep him contained so he couldn't have access to the schools and the hospital. And uh, as soon as I showed up on scene um, with my team, we immediately got into a gunfight um, with him. And uh, his AK-47 round uh, hit me about four inches below the left armpit, you know, that one small area that's not covered by a bulletproof vest. Um, And of course, you know, luck is on his side and, and he got me right there. Um, And the rounds uh, went in, uh, destroyed my spleen, uh, took out half of my left lung and um, went through my diaphragm and my stomach. And then when I had fallen down, um, I continued firing until I went unconscious. And that's when uh, we have SWAT medics on our team. And that's when the SWAT medic and my partner scooped me up and, and took me to the hospital. And um, so when I got to the hospital, I was I was dead. Um, there was no heartbeat. Uh, no the imaging, Yeah, the imaging, amazing uh, surgeon there uh, cracked open my chest. And I mean, with his bare hands, he... Uh, massaged my heart back to life. I didn't even know that was an actual procedure, but no. you know, it's, it's called an emergency thoracotomy where it's essentially a, the last ditch effort to try and save somebody's life from a trauma wound. And he would massage uh, with his hands, massage my heart and it started beating on its own again. Um, and then about 20 minutes later, uh, the heart stopped beating a second time. So they went back to massaging the heart um, and he finally got it to beat. A second time, uh, thank God. So uh, I died twice, and thankfully the right surgeon was there. He knew exactly what to do, and and he had saved my life. Um, unfortunately, because of all the damage, I'm I'm paralyzed from the belly button down. Mm. But uh, I will tell you that the physical injuries from uh, from that shooting, mm-hmm. I would deal with a hundred times more than uh, the mental struggle. Um, because like I said earlier, running was my coping mechanism. Well, now that I couldn't run, I had a really hard time adapting to life in a wheelchair and to what my new identity was going to be, um, to the point that, uh, I was severely depressed. Um, I was pushing my family away. I started having suicidal thoughts. Um, I was, I was going downhill quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it took, um, my stubborn family and friends um, to surround me and to let me know that um, that they weren't going to let me travel down that road. You know, they helped me realize that the road that I was traveling that was not uh, that was not the way I wanted to go. And they actually encouraged me to go see a therapist. And I will tell you, I, you know, when I was in the wheelchair. I still had hopes of being a cop, even though I knew that this, there's no way that they're going to let me still be a cop because mm-hmm. I can't do the essential functions. Right. Um, but then I was even more worried that once they found out that I had suicidal thoughts that, Oh, they're definitely going to fire me now. Like there's no way I'm going to be able to keep my job. And, you know, and that is a constant theme in the law enforcement world is, you know, we're two reasons we don't reach out for help is one is, um, we think it's a sign of weakness and two, we're in fear of losing our job, you know, and a lot of us have put it in blood and sweat to get to the point where we are now. We don't want to lose it. 
Um, So we kind of protect that as best as we can. Um, But I'll tell you that that's absolutely the best thing that I ever could have done was when to to go see a therapist and to get that help to help me recover from the, from the PTSI from the shooting. Mm. Um, And now having traveled that road, um, I'm now a huge advocate for mental health for first responders. Mm. And I am extremely grateful that uh, the sheriff at Douglas County has found a way for me to keep my badge and my gun, even, even from a wheelchair. So what a leader, huh? Yeah, that that alone uh, absolutely made a huge difference um, in my recovery, uh, you know, because I, I don't want to lose my identity. I didn't want to lose everything that I that for. I know, you know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. and worked for. And um, so to be able to keep that um, was huge for me. And so now, uh, now, you know, my whole focus is on let's take care of all the officers yes. that do go out on the road and, and handle all the nasty stuff. Since I can't be there with them out in the field handling or helping them, mm-hmm. I can at least be behind the scenes helping them with the mental health aspect of it. And uh, it's been actually an amazing journey because I would have never shared my feelings before this, you know? No. It, uh, there's, yeah, there's no way I would have just said, oh, I'm good. I don't need any help, you know? But like... Okay. So first off, like, thank you so much for number one, being on here. Number two, sharing this with us. And number three, for fighting to, to be better and to survive multiple times in your life. Not, not just, you know, your heart stopping twice, but I mean, afterwards, like, thank you for just never giving up because. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so powerful, but I have like a thousand questions. So (laughs) yeah, absolutely. The first question I have to ask you is, so, like, do you remember what it was like when you died? Uh, so, <clears throat> my mind did has this amazing feature where it'll uh, it blocked out, or uh, there's no memory of the actual shooting. Um, wow. We've d- done some EMDR, and the closest I can get to being in the shooting, remembering, mm-hmm. is um, when I was kneeling down in front of the left front tire of uh, my unmarked truck. Um, and the tires had just been replaced. So I had that new tire smell. Mm-hmm. And so that that smell will actually bring up uh, a lot of emotions with me. Mm. Um, but that is the, the last memory I have is me kneeling down in front of that tire, um, engaging in a gunfight with the suspect. Um, and, and so that, you, don't, yeah. you don't remember what it was like to die then? No. Because like, like people say that like, oh, you know, I saw this bright light or I saw God or blah, blah, blah. You don't have that? No, no, nothing. There's a, there's no memory of, of being shot and me going down and returning fire and none of that. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And so like how, okay. So like, how are your, like, how's your people that were with you? Like your team, how are they doing or how? Uh, well, <laughs> there's a, we're still very close. Um, I keep in contact with them uh, because there are still some that haven't gone to see a therapist to mm-hmm. deal with that trauma. <clears throat> and that's okay. You don't have to go see a therapist every time. Just You just need to learn how to have healthy coping mechanisms, you know, not turn to, to alcohol or gambling or, or any other kind of risky behavior, but just to have that that healthy way of venting and to releasing those emotions. And so we keep... Uh, 
in contact with each other a lot um, to make sure we're all doing okay. Because, uh, you know, just like me, they all have good days and bad days too. Mm. Even though they're physically, they're perfectly fine. It's those invisible injuries that can tear you up if you don't address them. Absolutely. Now, when, okay, so do you have any, what would you give, you know, Sheepdog Nation for advice? Like, was there any advice? Was there anything that you would do differently? Like you are responding to this call of a suicidal male, um, one of the most dangerous, you know, calls that law enforcement officers go to aside from a DV, right? And Mm so do you have any advice? Like what, what would you say? To an officer? Uh, well, you know, I think now um, it seems like the approach to suicidal subjects is starting to change. Uh, you know, where before it was, let's um, run in and get them, save their lives. But now it's, you know, if, if they're armed, what is the real point of us going in risking our own lives? Agreed. Um, right you know to try to save them like we we can still try but how let's not rush in um right and then and then start a confrontation and then and then we end up getting hurt so it's just you know finding alternatives to dealing with the situation Mm -hmm. you know whether that be standing off and trying to communicate and and doing other other approaches other than let's just uh, run in and grab this guy Absolutely. Yeah, that's great advice. And I, I have definitely seen more of a more of a shift. Like when I when I first started, it was like, all right, we're going in, <laughs> you know, we're going to go in, right. we're going to, we, you know, we're going to, whatever we do, well, we're going to get this person because if they're armed, then they're going to hurt themselves. And it was like, not even a thought that they might freaking, like, it was a thought, but it was like a distant thought. But now, mm-hmm. now you're right. Now it's like, okay, so if they're inside by themselves, okay, they have a gun, but it's not illegal right. to have a freaking gun, you know, they're in their home, yeah. there's nobody else in there. Okay. So if they, and, and that's why, um, in, in my incident, you know, cause he was still in an RV when we showed up on his property, our whole goal was just to prevent him from getting inside the house. Mm. Um, and it just so happens because I was the first on scene, I positioned myself in between the RV and the house because we didn't know what other weapons he had in the house or if there was anybody else in the house. We were just going to isolate him to the RV mm-hmm. and then work on different approaches. But as soon as I put myself in between him and the house, he started firing at us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that situation wasn't so much as we were rushing in to get him. We were just trying to contain him to a very small area so then we can try and deploy other tactics. And it's crazy how fast shit can go bad, right? Yes. Yes, very fast. Yeah very fast and a lot of times like I know you know in my mind I'm like all right well if this happens I'm gonna do this right and if this happens I'm gonna do this like what we're taught in the academy but probably in your situation you didn't even you know it's like okay I'm gonna do this because like you said I'm gonna contain this person the next thing you know all fucking hell breaks loose and you just don't Mm -hmm. even yeah 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 yep and then you just uh you're you respond according to how you've been trained, you know, and it just kicks in without a second thought. And, uh, yeah, before you know it, I would woke up uh, in the hospital 10 days later. <laughs> really? 10 days later, huh? Yeah. Crazy. And so, okay. So let me ask you this, like what, 
Okay. So just to bring it back for a moment. So you said, Autumn, I used to, you know, how I coped um, prior to, you know, this incident, I would run, spend, you know, what'd you say? Did you say you spent 18 years on the job running? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So that was my coping mechanism, you know, to, to get that euphoric feeling after you run that, that natural high Mm -hmm. um, that really helped me clear my head, help me control my emotions when the internal and external stresses of the job um, would start to rear their ugly head. And it worked for me like that was, and it was successful at it. You know, it, uh, it worked really well for me, but then once my legs were taken away, right, I'm paralyzed. Um, I can't do that anymore. I can't even reach that level, that euphoric level anymore. Um, so now I had to find completely different ways to cope and I wasn't ready or prepared uh, to learn different coping mechanisms because my mind was so stuck on the, on the situation and how much it has taken away from me, you know, I'm not able to hold my wife's hand when we go for a walk. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't take my daughters to the daddy daughter dance on Valentine's day and dance like we used to. I can't play basketball with them like we used to. Like there's just so many things um, that it stripped away from me that uh, it was really starting to eat me up inside and uh, was pushing me further down that hole of depression. Mm. And yeah. So, okay. So I just want to ask you this. I want to bring it back for just a second. So that was how you coped, right? Mm-hmm. You ran. Now, let me ask you this. Because you didn't, like you said, you can't, you would run, you'd get, you know, that high and, and that's how you dealt with it. But because you didn't really talk about things, would you say that that affected your like relationship or your life back then though? Oh um, yes, absolutely. So my wife is a, she's a patrol sergeant. Um, wow. She gets know, it so, so, Yeah. So she gets it, but um, I will tell you um, the difference between then and now like back then, not sharing my feelings or my emotions, that definitely had an effect on our relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. we still loved each other, but it wasn't as deep of a connection as it is now. Because mm-hmm. now I've had to learn a different way to communicate, a different way to love my family. And we are now on a, on a whole new level um, because of this incident, um, because we have stuck by each other and supported each other. And so we have to find new ways of communicating and <clears throat> that's why now you know it that running was helping me cope but at some point but you the running is not going to help anymore right. right yeah right yeah it was is there was more of a suppression technique um which had worked so well but there was going to become a point where you eventually boil over you know mm-hmm. um and I was under the impression that, well, if I just keep running, I can keep that at a low summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously that's, that's not the case. Cause when I got shot, that's when it boiled over and uh, it was bad, a bad mental place to be in. And so do you think that therapy is what pulled you out of it? Uh, I think it was a combination of things. Uh, it was definitely therapy um, and trying to learn how to process the trauma, um, how to learn, to live life in a wheelchair, how to accept that. But then also uh, it was faith that we, I was never a strong believer before this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then once this happened and I realized 
all these little things that happened during the shooting and there's no other explanation than and that God had to intervene. You know, like I can just give you a few examples. After I got shot and I fell down, the suspect was still shooting at me. And around my body, you could see um, these little marks in the ground, you know, and they found out that that's the AK-47 rounds that were skipping off the ground as he was trying to hit me. But he didn't. He only hit me once. Had he put another hole in me while I was down, I wouldn't be here, you know. Um, And then the fact that the right surgeon who had that experience in emergency thoracotomy um, saved my life. Because the suspect was so close to the hospital, um, when he was just randomly shooting, one of those rounds went through the fourth story window of the hospital. No um, And it, that window just happened to belong to the on-call surgeon that saved my life. Because he heard the sirens, um, he went down to the ER to see what was going on. After he left, that round went uh, through his window, through his computer screen and through like three more walls before it stopped. No shit. Um, So there's like, I, there is no other explanation for that. You know, like if he would have just stayed up in his office doing his thing and not, I've heard the sirens and went down just prior. Like if he would have been shot, there's no way I would have been here Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, he was the only one that knew how to do that kind of procedure at the hospital. So there's just a lot of, nuances in the shooting that uh, I'm like, there can be no other explanation than, than God intervened. Absolutely. You know, in the round, AK-47 round travels at 2,400 feet per second, roughly. Mm. And it, when it hit my side, it had, that bullet had no contact with any other um, part of the environment. It didn't hit part of the vest or the rifle or anything. It just went straight from the AK-47 muzzle to my side with no interruption. So why didn't that round continue to travel straight to my heart, you know? Instead, it hit my spleen and took a sudden turn south towards the stomach, which um, doesn't make sense to me because if it's only hitting soft body tissue, you would think the bullet would travel straight for a little bit, Um, but it didn't. And I, I cannot explain that. Wow, that's fascinating. And so, yeah. okay, so this all leads us into what you're doing now. Will you tell Sheepdog Nation like what you're doing now? Yeah, so now uh, the Douglas County Sheriff's Office has fully invested into uh, the wellness of their employees and families. Mm. Um, so we have created a peer support and wellness um, unit in which uh, I am now in charge of, and we're trying to get it up and running to focus on the mental health for our employees. But then also, aside from that, you know, we are approaching legislation, both at the federal and state level, to try and do a few things for mental health. Uh, One is to make law or first responder suicides mandatory reporting with some confidentiality, right? We don't want pictures and names given out of respect for the families, but we want to capture key data, you know, how long have they been on the job? What unit were they in? You know, um, certain things that can help us better understand why we're doing this and maybe do a little bit of of an autopsy of their career to kind of see maybe where they, where the turning point was so we can help combat this problem. Um, Because I'll, I'll tell you now, for uh especially for um law enforcement the line of duty deaths um is much less than the suicides that happen every year i know and that's only data from voluntary 
um, information. So agencies that want to get that information up or families that want to provide that info, that's only data from that kind of um, community. It's not mandatory, you know. So I think once you make it mandatory, it's going to throw out a big number that's really going to wake people up and be like, this is this is huge. Like, this is a big problem and okay. we need to address it. And yeah. the sad thing is there's only 10% of agencies across the U.S. have any kind of suicide prevention program, mm -hmm. yet it's our number one killer. So that, that doesn't make sense. So we want to bring awareness to that through the mandatory reporting. Then also to provide job protections for first responders that reach out, right, to help destroy that stigma that I'm going to lose my job if I reach out for help. Well, let's make sure you don't lose that job and let's give you job protections. It's not your fault that you have to go to all these calls um, that cause trauma, death, you know, serious injury. The job is responsible for causing those, um, those kind of emotions and experiences. So we should be responsible for helping you take care of it and helping you keep your job while you get help. Um, so it's just another approach to to letting the first responder community know that it's okay to reach out for help and you are protected. You know, it's it's so powerful. It's what you're saying is so powerful. So, what was that video that I found? Do you remember? Hmm. Yes, I do. It's called um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's called starting the conversation. Hmm. So we teamed up with uh, Dr. Metz, who's a uh, police psychologist or public safety psychologist out here in Colorado with code Four counseling. And our goal was, you know, we wanted to lead by example and show people that, you know what, it is okay to talk about these things that you experience. There should be no shame in reaching out for help and that your mental health is just as important as your physical health. Mm. So with the video, what we did is <clears throat> we're going to actually shoot some more, but with this first one, we did a, uh, cops and firefighters and then their spouses and adult children and we interviewed them to kind of understand you know what their emotions were like um what they went through and to, to let people know you know in the first responder community that they're not alone and we wanted to present that especially here in colorado to make it part of a academy training mandatory academy training mm -hmm. and mandatory in-service training so Every year, you know, um, first responders would have to watch um, this video and learn that it's okay to to reach out for help. It's okay to have these feelings that um, there's hundreds of others that share the same exact experience as you do. And that um, the only way that you're going to get healthier mentally is by starting that conversation. And that has to be with either a trusted one or with a therapist but it has to, at some point, it has to happen because if we continue to keep it in, that's what's killing us. Okay. So that, that was my next question is, so is that what you, what, in your opinion, because you've obviously been, you know, very low, as you stated, you know, um, earlier, what would mm -hmm. you think the number one, why are, why do we have such a police, what do we have such a problem with police suicide? Why is the rate so high? I think the rate's so high. Um, well, there's a couple reasons. One is we are so used to uh, helping everybody else that when we have our own problems, we feel like we can take care of them on our own. Mm -hmm. But then the other part of that also is the the internal stressors from 
um, having the depression and the mental health issues, you know, like I'm afraid that I am going to get fired or I'm going to get transferred or demoted or I'm going to lose everything that I've worked so hard for um, because they're going to think I'm mentally unstable, which and that is the furthest from the truth. You know, the goal here is to get help early and often so it doesn't end up to where you're relying on alcohol or risky behaviors to cope, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and it all starts from the command staff from the very top that has to be sold that mental health, we're investing in mental health for your, our employees. And uh, we're going to make sure that you're taken care of not only physically, but mentally as well. And then you don't feel like you have that kind of support. I think really shuts down um, those officers that, that need to reach out for help. Absolutely. And so what, what do you think? So you, so tell me about the solution that you've created. So tell me, can you tell me about the group that people, do you guys get together? Is it like, yeah. So it's just a, uh, essentially what we did is we just sent out a, a message to Colorado first responders and uh, said, Hey, is there anybody willing to talk about their experiences? Um, Cause we want to record that and display that, you know, if it reaches across the nation, so be it, but we want it to be seen by as many first responders as possible as this is what getting help looks like. This is the pain that we all suffer from. And this is how we can recover from that pain. Um, so, uh, our next video is going to be on substance abuse. So having, um, you know, firefighters, cops, um, spouses, kind of like the same thing that focuses just on substance abuse as a uh, unhealthy coping mechanism. Mm. And uh, I'll tell you, when we put that message out there, I was overwhelmed with the response of first responders and their families that wanted to be a part of it. Uh, And it was actually amazing um, to see that there are so many people willing to speak up about it. So I think we've come at a time in this profession where well, actually, we're past due the time um, where mental health is should be one of the things that we really focus on. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's a big, to be honest with you, that was why I started this podcast because, you know, a year ago, a year and a couple of months ago, I was just venting. You know, I got injured on duty and I, and I can tell you that um, I didn't have near the experience that you did, but I can just say that being injured on duty and not being able to be a cop and not be able to do my job. I didn't work for an agency that was as nice as yours. I can tell you that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, but just not being able to do it even full time, like I still do a part time, but anyways, you know, it, it changes you and it changes your mentality mm-hmm. and it, and it, you know, it hits you at such a core, like it's and. And for me, I went through this experience where I lost a lot of, you know, my own partner just fucking went away. Like this, this guy who, I mean, I worked with him for four or five years and we just, I mean, we were, we hung out all the time together off duty. Our, you know, our spouses knew each other. Like we all four hung out all the time, all the time. And then I got injured and like my partner just like literally disowned me and like that that was so heartbreaking, mm. right? And that's part mm. of the mind fuck you're talking about as far as it takes you at such a deep level. And I think, you know, 
you know, I think police officers, like you said, we work so hard to get where we're at. You know, you don't want to give that up. And when you, right. when you go through situations where, and you know, and I have to say this is that even the cops that haven't lost their job, right? But like the cops that are going through terrible times or they just feel completely outcasted from everybody in the police department. Mm-hmm. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I mean, even that, that hits hard. Right. Yeah. And that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Mm. You know, we should be opening up our arms and taking in our brothers and sisters and being there for them and then helping them get through it. You know, um, this, it, it's hard enough to find good cops. Yep. Um, you know, our, our application pool, applicant pool is dwindling. Um, so why are we not taking care of the ones that are already doing the job and helping them get better? You know, it helps the uh, office all around because you now have a, a healthier employee that's making better decisions out there because their mind is not is now not uh, consumed with uh, all the trauma they dealt with. You know, they've they've learned how to process it and learned how to live a healthier life. So why not tr- invest in those employees and and try to keep them around as long as we can? Mm, powerful, and that's yeah. true, and that and that's where I'm at too. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know why people aren't, I don't know why more agencies aren't all I can think. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I mean, or but my opinion from my experience and based on the officers that I've spoken with around the country, you know, what seems to be the answer is that we just have a lot of old school administrations that they're just far removed. Like for some, you know, maybe, I don't know. That's just kind of what I think. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's that um, archaic approach to, uh, you know, suck it up, buttercup. Um, let's just go deal with it uh, by drinking alcohol or, um, you know, you deal with it on your own time. And l- listen, I, I get that when we're on the job, yes, we do have to suck it up, right? I mean, we have to keep that level of professionalism, you know, maintain scene control, uh, I get it that we cannot be emotional while on the job, but we need to learn uh, emotional intelligence and learn when to turn that off. Mm. Um, when, you, when you're in a safe environment and it's all right to release, to talk about it. Hell, it's even all right if you cry. I cried. I ain't ashamed of it. Like I cried a lot well, yeah. because I, I completely lost my identity and I had no idea what was going to happen to me. Like I have no shame in that. Um, and we need to start, changing that philosophy to let's teach these people that when they're off duty or when they're in a safe environment, that's when you can let your guard down mm-hmm. and when you can share your emotions. When we can turn it right right back on and off, but the problem is, is we tend to carry that into our personal lives. Yeah. And now we're doing the same things with our families and our friends, right? Where we have that emotional armor, we're, we're keeping a, a certain demeanor about us, we're we're not sharing anything. We're remaining in that professional kind of environment to like 24 seven and that's unhealthy. Yes, absolutely. Dan, I just want to say thank you so much because you've, the, the, the information, your perspective, your experience that you've shared with us has been honestly just <laughs> very, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even have the words to say it right now, but I'm just so humbled that you've, you're here, that you've come on and that, you know, you're, you're still fighting. And I think for Mm -hmm. me, the biggest lesson that I want 
Shibdagnation to take from this is that you you went through obviously every officer's worst night worst nightmare. Like I'm not, we're just gonna call a spade a spade, right? Like mm-hmm. you right. know, you've been down in the dumps to the point where, you know, you said you you know you had some suicidal thoughts, and that's yes. you know the truth is is I'm gonna say this is that's actually not rare. That's probably very common in law enforcement um, whether we want to admit it or not right and you you know you express that you had these these fears you know what well because I've you know they're gonna strip me from my badge obviously because and they never ended up doing that which is amazing and and you admitted that you went to therapy and and all these things but you know the thing that I just respect so much about you is that you have went through this life-altering you know event or events and look at you now you know, a lot of people, sheepdog nation and pay attention to this because this is, this is what life is all about. You know, we can't, we cannot choose the, the deck of cards that we're given. We we don't get to choose that, right? Like we, we just don't. And, and, you know, Dan was just like everybody else, you know, he lived, you know, for 18 years, he was doing his job, doing his thing one day and, and, you know, a situation in seconds has changed his entire life. But the thing is, is that Dan, you're still fighting and you're still, you're, you're, you're looking to change the world with your experience um, and your resources and you're bringing resources together and everything that you're doing. It truly was inspiring. It was inspiring for me right when I saw that video, which is why I reached out to you because I literally was so moved by that video and, and Sheepdog Nation. I'm going to, I'm going to put the link to the video in the show notes so that you can watch it too. And you can understand how I felt. Um, and you can see the impact that Dan is having. And, and, and so here's the message that I just want to say before Dan, I ask you um, what you want to leave Sheepdog Nation with. Sheepdog Nation for me, my message to you is this. You can Never tell what's going to happen to you, but you can always do something with what you're given. You can always do something and look at Dan and he's a prime example. He's doing something. He's not just sitting around being depressed, you know, fuck my life. What the hell happened? Blah, blah, blah. He's not doing that. He took the right steps. He took the steps he needed to take. And now he's, he's, cha- he's changing law enforcement for the better you know, based on his experiences. So Dan, I just, again, I just need to say thank you. Um, thank you for being with us and, and thank you for doing you because it is so needed. Um, I'm really big on the uh, law enforcement suicide as well. So um, I'm happy to see what you're doing. Can you can you tell Sheepdog Nation what you want to leave them with? Yeah, um, and just real quick that those videos, um, that is just a little short clip and next week we're hoping to release the full the full clip so i'll let you know about that so you can post it up so people can see because we want that to be shared um across the nation um but yeah you know i learned uh early on that i had an option right we always have an option i could either sit in this chair and be angry and mad depressed um and watch my health dwindle or I could say, you know what, there's no way the suspect's going to win and I'm going to do something uh, meaningful in my life. Um, I don't need legs to do what I'm doing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I'm not going to let him win this battle. And, and I do that by taking care of the first responders, finding out ways to give them the help they need so they can continue to carry on their job. Um, but there was no way in hell I was going to let um, the suspect win by, um, having me live in misery in a wheelchair. Mm. And there are still 
good day. There are still bad days and a lot more good days than bad days. Um, but you know, we're, I'm still fighting, um, right along my other brothers and sisters and, and we're going to find ways to, uh, to help slow this, this suicide rate down and help give our, our people the help they need. Absolutely. So powerful. Dan, how can people find you? Uh, well, I don't, I'm on Facebook. That's about it. I'm not a, I'm not a real big social guy, a social media guy, but, um, I don't have a, I don't have Twitter or Instagram or any of that stuff. Um, so it's just uh Facebook at Dan Bright, B-R-I-T-E. Cool. Awesome. And, and she pregnant. I'm going to have that video. I'm going to put in the show notes. I'll let you know how to get um, in touch with Dan and uh, Dan, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. All right, Sheepdog Nation. We'll see you next time. And that was another episode of Sheepdog Nation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and let us know by giving us a rating. If you have questions that you want answered by Autumn in the podcast, submit it by going to the link in the show notes. As always, stay safe and watch your six.